as I've said 20 sometimes uh, now, we are in 1 Samuel, and we will be in chapter 22 tonight, walking through the 23 verses, and we're going to be talking about how Jesus is our refuge. Now, at first, that might sound a little odd. Maybe you don't think of Jesus as a refuge, but by the end of tonight, hopefully you will. You see, up until now, we've seen uh, we've seen King Saul chasing after because of jealousy, because of uh, greed, because of just anger uh, and a little bit of insanity, King David, or what will soon be King David, and he is trying to kill him. And so we saw in chapter 21 that David was running scared, and his life looked crazy as he uh, started to tremble a little bit in his faith or lack uh, a little bit of faith, and he acted crazy in front of the king in um, King Akish of Gath. And then we saw, of course, before that, he was before some priests, and he had a weird encounter with them, and his life was just in ruins. And so we see the running ends. He starts to wait on the Lord. He finds some refuge in a cave and in some other areas tonight, and we're going to see how uh, our refuge is better than David's. And we're going to see, if you remember, last week I talked about uh, the crossroads between or of pain and truth pain and truth, and how both Saul and David had to make decisions, and they were obviously different decisions in the way that they were going to turn. And so we see tonight kind of how this plays out. So chapter 21 and 22 are very closely tied together because we're going to see how it plays out for Saul. His life gets crazier, and it is in more, um, it is in shambles more so than ever. But David, he finds a little bit of peace, you can tell something has shifted in his soul, and he, he relies on the Lord a little bit more. Now, for most of us, when we think about the crossroads between pain and truth, we think uh, of maybe making one huge decision, the difference between being a non-believer and a believer, that you've got to come to the end of your rope, you've got to realize that we can't do this life on our own, that we need Jesus to be Lord. And it's true, that is a huge decision to finally bow a knee to Jesus. That is, that is of the utmost importance. But for believers, we have a series of even daily decisions that we make that determine whether or not Jesus is our refuge, whether or not we're going to abide in Christ. And so we're going to be talking about that tonight. I think, uh, as many of you know, we obviously have a crisis in our world with refugees um, being displaced physically from their home and now scattered all around the world trying to find either their previous home or a new home, but life is obviously uh, different for those who have been displaced. I think when it comes to uh, Christianity in America, spiritually, we have a lot of spiritual refugees. People who know that their foundation should be Christ, they profess Him as Lord and Savior, and yet they're not able to take refuge in Him. The world comes and it blows them off that path. It blows them off the rock that is Christ and they're grasping for home. And they know because they're lacking joy, they're lacking peace, that something is desperately wrong in their lives. So my question as you walk through this tonight with me is, are you lacking joy? Are you lacking peace? Are you lacking contentment? The very things Christ promises for those who remain in him. Because I think if that's you, if you are lacking some of those things, you might find that Jesus is Lord, Jesus Savior, but Jesus isn't your refuge. And that's the difference between, uh, <laughs> that's like somebody winning the lottery, celebrating it, letting everyone know they've won the lottery and yet never cashing the check. And it seems like it defeats the whole purpose. So hopefully by the end of tonight, you're refreshed a little bit and sure and encouraged to make Jesus not just Lord and Savior, but your hiding place, your refuge in life. So let's walk through this. Chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And David departed from there. Remember, he was back with the king in Gath, Achish, and that's when he acted crazy and life had got to uh, a low point for David. And so he departs from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt 
And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The stronghold is a a geographical area. And then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. First thing we see is we see David's decision when he's at the crossroads of pain and truth. His decision is to seek refuge. We'll see in a bit Saul's decision, and then we'll finish out the night by seeing the consequences of these two decisions, one from Saul, one from David. But as you know, I like to park on the first point of the night because it sets up the context. It changes uh, the whole uh, meaning of where we're going tonight. And so I got, I got to make sure that I park on this because these verses, these five verses are, they, they're, they're packed full of good stuff. So let me, let me just backtrack a little bit here. Okay, you see right off the bat, there's a shift in the feel. There's no more running anymore. Now all of a sudden there, there's a little bit of refuge. The word adolam is Hebrew for refuge. So this cave, some of you might've heard uh, ministries called like a cave of adolam ministries and this idea of finding refuge for those who are um, broken, those who need healing. And David obviously is to the point where he's exhausted. I don't know if that's you, but he needs rest. His family needs rest. And he's like, I, I've got to stop running from God. I've got to stop running from Saul. I just, I need to rest for a second. And so we see in verse 1, he goes to a cave called Adullam, a place of refuge. You and I, we have Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that we run to. He is our hiding place. He is better than this cave. But you see in verse 2 that a bunch of people gather to him, and it says, everyone who is in distress. Is that you? Everyone who is in debt. Is that you? Everyone who is bitter in soul, that might be you, gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So this weird picture is painted of, number one, he finds a place of refuge, and for us we know that's Jesus. But number two, we see in in verse two, a whole bunch of people with junk in the trunk, things going on, they get together and they say, we're going to be with you in this refuge. They got all kinds of issues and yet they're gathering together. This is the church, is it not? Like this is, this is the, the people who are broken who say, we need a refuge. And, and David, you'd think at the lowest point in his life, he's got to be thinking to himself, there's no way God can use me. A guy who goes before the king and he is just in turmoil and he is running from one king and he's acting crazy in front of another king. And yet God uses him. Isn't that funny how it works when you're broken and you realize it and you find refuge in Christ? God says, now I can finally use you. Now you can minister to other people. This is church. This is church. But you see something interesting happens. As beautiful as this is, and we could talk all night about these two verses alone, you see in verse 3 through 5 that God don't let him stay there. God doesn't let him stay there. He goes to the, the, the king of Moab. Now this is important because Moab, we're talking outside of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now David's great-grandma was a gal named Ruth. Many of you know Ruth. And so he, he, Ruth was a Moabite. And so going to this king, he might have a little bit of trust, knowing, hey, I got some, some heritage here, and I'm, I'm going to trust this king is going to take care of my family. And he says, yes, but this prophet Gad says, yeah, but y'all can't stay in the cave. And David's got to leave. You see, back in, in the Old Testament, they had uh, strict instructions that you would not be living in these foreign lands unless it was the promised land God was giving. You weren't going to uh, mingle with the people. You were going to stay separated. And so David, he's like, all right, I finally got a cave. We're going to set up shop here. We're going to do church together. And, and then God says, no, but remember, you can't stay there. You got to go back to Judah. You see, that's what God does is when you find refuge in the wrong places, no matter how good they might feel temporarily, he ushers you back into where you're supposed to be. And he reminds you, you can't get, you can't get joy. You can't get peace that's going to last. You can't get what you really need. You can't place your hope in things that you were never meant to be placing your hope in. And so God does that. 
He does that over and over and over. It must be the end of the sermon because I just got kicked off a little bit here. Let me let me get back on for you. Oh, I think our maybe we'll get old Logan down here. He can help out. Try to get on one more time. I bet you I could preach without him. All right. So, God moves us from places we're not supposed to be to find hope where we really need to be finding hope. How many of you, um, how many of y'all, when you were little, how many of you had a treehouse? I loved, I loved the treehouse we had. Now, you know, we grew up in a tiny little town called Randolph, way up north of Manhattan. And we had a, a whole line of trees on the outskirts of town, which was just a few houses over from us, that we asked the mayor if we could build uh, treehouses in. And so the neighborhood kids all got together, and I was a, a sort of ringleader for them, we got together and we started building tree houses. Now we didn't just build one, we built like one in a tree and then one on top of it and then one really high in it. And then we started building bridges into other trees and we had three different trees and several tree houses in each one and bridges going between them. We had roofs, we had shingles, we had all kinds of things going. It turned into a tree village. It was like you see the, the tree house stuff on Discovery Channel and you're like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I. He stole that from us in Randolph, Kansas. Like, we, we had a little village up in the canopy. Now, we loved it. And the, the town kind of rallied around us because all the kids, they loved being a part of this. We would sleep in our treehouses. We would have parties in our treehouses. It, it was just fun. People would donate supplies for these treehouses. And then one of the kids in town who just came for the summer. He was a high school kid. He didn't like us. We didn't know him. He was from some city, and he just came for the summer. And he, he in the middle of the night, he took a chainsaw, and he chopped down the tree, and he chopped all of our houses to pieces. And we discovered our little village was now destroyed. And even now when I drive by, I look over, and I'll tell Tara as we're driving by like that. That's where our tree houses were. That's where our tree houses were. And that was it. We never rebuilt because it literally chopped down our trees and there were no other trees capable of, of this village being built on. Now, of course, it broke our little hearts as kids. But God does that over and over and over. He moves you out of places that you were never supposed to camp in. He takes you out of places that you were never supposed to truly find your joy in. And Jesus, we know, is certainly better than a cave. You see, Jesus, he is, he is a refuge that is everlasting. But there's responsibility on the part of the believer to make sure you're living in this refuge. You're living in this refuge. You see, Jesus not only is uh, our refuge, but he loves it. This is the Father's heart, right? Like If anyone in here is a parent, or uh, you have parents, so that'd be all of us, right? It's like you, you know, the heart of a parent isn't just to claim that you have children. Like there's not much joy just in claiming that you have children. It's actually walking with and living with your children. It's about the journey together that makes it special. And so God wants that with us. He wants us to live in him. You'll see quick. You'll see in, uh, in John chapter 15. Let me flip over there real quick. Let me just read to you these verses, and I know you're familiar with them. I know you've heard them, but let me, let me just say here, and look for a word. It's called abide, right? And this means literally to, to live in. So here, here's what I'm saying. And he's talking to the disciples, not just a bunch of non-believers right here. So he's talking to you and me. And he says this, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, so there's supposed to be produce from your life, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that's discipline, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in, are you seeing any repetition here? Abides in me and I in him is the one who is going to bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. So now you're going to get a little picture of what it looks like to abide. My words abide in you. And ask whatever you wish, it will be done. So now prayer comes into it. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, this is what it looks like, abide in my love. So remind yourself of his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So now to obey him, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, this is key, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Abide, abide, abide. Ten times he says, live in me. Live in me. It's not just, hey, Jesus, be Lord. It is Jesus has got to be your refuge. He's got to be your hiding place. He's got to be the place that you find and seek out comfort. Listen, he says, this is where joy is. I don't find many Christians who are struggling, and they say, "I I don't feel joy. I don't experience joy. I don't have comfort. I'm not content in the Lord. I don't find them with a healthy personal relationship with God filled with his word and devotion to him and prayer and and with obedience and immersing themselves in God's love. Like that, they they just don't go. There's a disconnect. Like your issues, my issues, our lack of contentment, our lack of joy, it will always come back to a lack of abiding. America and Christianity in America doesn't have a, a belief issue as much as we have an abiding issue. Because you look at disciples all over the world in many, many foreign countries, and you say, how can they be in prison in some cases and persecuted and seem to have a more healthy, thriving relationship with the Lord than we do? We have every advantage in America. What's stopping us? We're not persecuted. It's because we have the temptation of so many other comforts that say, come, abide in me, abide in me. And Jesus is saying, I told you to abide in me, and we're just but there's so many other things to enjoy. When everything's taken from you, you realize all I got is to abide in Jesus. It's one thing, but when you got options, even if those things are only give you just a taste of pleasure, it so often sidetracks us. Last week I said that I believe a lot of us have silent strongholds, and I think we also have quiet idols, because that's a daily struggle for you and I. How many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, things that people wouldn't say are idols. We just don't talk about. How many of us, when we go home at night, we're not thinking, man, I'm going to rest spiritually in the Lord. I'm going to spend some time with him. How many of us are really dreaming of Netflix and finishing episode 6 million out of 7 million that we just watched for the third time in a row, you know, of some random show we stumbled upon last week by someone's Facebook testimony about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, does, does Netflix over and over, or just searching the web, or planning the next project, or getaway, or, or whatever is relevant, or that next book. Now, again, you can enjoy those things and find pleasure in them without them being idols, but let's be honest. How many of us, when we have the choice between some of those things and Jesus, those things rule, not just for a few minutes, but sometimes for hours, captivating us. And afterwards, how do you feel when you shut that computer, you turn that TV off, you slam that book, and you're getting ready to sleep, and you feel what? Like you lost something. Like, like you, you had an opportunity to abide in Jesus, and you're trying to find all your pleasure somewhere else. And you're like, I, do, I like that book. I like that Netflix. But it just stole my night, and it couldn't give me what Jesus can give. Now, you've got to use discernment as to whether it's just something you're enjoying or, or something that is an idol. But I think we have quiet idols. And so what happens is slowly but surely, and you know it. Oh, church, you know it. Sometimes the, this is so relevant, but it's not. I don't know that it's going to hit home as relevant. I see it over and over, Christians coming in. We're worshiping the Lord, and we're serving together, and yet you can just see it. It's like you can see into the soul of one another as we're walking by in the halls. Each one of us, sometimes we're losing slowly a little more joy, a little more contentment, a little more <laughs> p- 
peace inside, and we're just like, what's wrong with you? Well, nothing really has happened in life. And it's, just, but it's like, and we can't diagnose it in each other. And we're like, why are we not finding like this joy in Christ? Where's it going? It's because it slowly leaves, and so we become what I what I call we, we do the old search and rescue, the fireman search. Now in fire science school, I, I learned very early in search and rescue classes, when you go into a dark house, you either do a left-handed search or a right-handed search, and you get on the ground, you get on your knees, and you got a buddy behind you, he's got one hand on your leg, and you're going, and you always, if you're going to do a right-hand search, you, you find the wall, that's your first thing, and you keep your hand on that wall, and with the other hand, you search for people, and you go, you go in a circle, you go wherever that wall leads you, but you do not leave that wall. And I believe Christians spiritually, we're doing, we're doing the same search. We got our hand on Jesus. We're like, I know, I know all about Jesus. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to worship him. But I'm searching for secondary pleasures. And I'm hoping that some of them will give me more than what I know they're possible uh, uh, in giving me. But I'm, 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 I'm still searching. And Jesus is like, church, when, when are you going to believe that I'm enough? When are you going to dive into the depths of the goodness of my son and not into what the world has to offer? Why are you deceiving yourselves that somehow you're going to get what you can only get me and your materialistic, your, your possessions and your relationships? This is why we lack joy. So we say, well, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does it mean? It means to be fully devoted to him. It's a, it's a mindset. It's being proactive in our relationship with him, not reactive. We don't build our house on the rock when the storm comes. We do it prior to the storm, so when the storm comes, we're still standing. We're, we don't wait for the hard times. We, we wake up and we say, you know what? I'm intentional. I am going to be disciplined. My mindset is on the things of God. I want, I want to live in Christ today. I'm going to talk to him throughout the day. I'm going I'm to stay connected to him throughout. I'm going to make sure that when heartache comes, when decisions come, that I come to him as Lord and not myself. I'm going to make sure that I, he is first in, in where I run in every situation. He told us, abide in my word, abide in my love. Immerse in yourself in the truths of the gospel. You're going to find that peace and joy and comfort and contentment just naturally flow out of people who are intentional with this relationship. This is the whole thing. This is Christianity. This is the blessing. And it's right in front of you. That was David's decision to find some refuge. Now we see Saul, and it's a different story. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. On the height means he was, he was on top of a hill. I'll explain that in a second. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. So Benjamin was the tribe that Saul was in. He's appealing to the leaders around him, but he, it, it's family. He made, he made his family his chief servants, so to speak. Will the son of Jesse... Remember, Jesus, when he referred to himself, what was the primary uh, way that he referred to himself in his ministry? He say, I am God. Everyone, every time he goes somewhere, he's like, I'm God. Bow down to me. No, he calls himself this uh, from Isaiah, this term that you see, son of man, son of man. It was a, a humbling term. And so Saul does this with both Ahimelech, the priest, and a little bit, and also with David. He won't even say their name. He just says, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. It's degrading, so to speak. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you, this is, oh, I love this part. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse come into Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. If you remember back in chapter 21, David saw this Doag dude, and he knew, oh man, that's not an Israelite. That's some slave dude that we captured in war, and he's, gonna, he's, he's bad news. And now, 
Doeg is ratting him out. Here's Saul's decision. David sought refuge when he was running. Saul, he has self-pity and blame. Verse 6, it said that Saul was sitting under a tamarisk tree uh, on the height with his sword. What does that mean and why is that crucial? It's crucial because of this. If you look in the book of Judges, it was, um, remember there's no temple uh, at this point. It's going to be built by David's son Solomon here in the next hundred years. So they don't have a place where the king is ruling. They, they would go up on a hill, and you see this in the book of Judges. They would go and they would rule over the people. They would have their servants around them. They would make decisions for people. But they're basically looking over their kingdom. It's a sign of power to be up on this hill. And so you see Saul. What is he doing? He's sitting up there with all his people around him, looking over his kingdom, sitting on his throne. And out of that, he opens his mouth, and he goes on a rant with self-pity. Woe is me. Nobody's sorry for me. Nobody's looking out for me and blaming others. You, you, my own son, my family. Nobody came and told me when, when my son Jonathan was making a covenant with David. Nobody did this. Nobody did that. And he's got some foreigner who's a slave at this point saying, well, I saw David do this. But everyone else is just standing there. He's blaming him. You see, here's the core. The context of this little rant is that Saul was concerned about self-preservation about his own kingdom. And if the root is self-preservation in your life, building your own kingdom, then the fruit will always be self-pity and blame. And here's why. The human mind and the human heart has a hard time fathoming pain, the concept of pain. You and I were not created for the sake of going through pain. We're created, uh, obviously you see Genesis 1 and 2, you see prior to sin, we didn't experience a bunch of this junk that we experience now in a broken, fallen world. And so it's good. But our mind, when, we have, when we're at that crossroads of pain and truth, if your foundation, if your heart's desire is to build your own kingdom, to have self-preservation, you will never look at pain as a good thing. You, you're incapable of looking at pain as a good thing. Because you're sitting on the throne of your own life, and pain, whether it be physical pain, is a way to chop you down. Emotional pain and relationally, you say, they're attacking me. Pain, when self-preservation is your foundation, pain will always be an attack and a threat on your own kingdom. But, when at the crossroads of truth and pain, you choose truth. And you realize, you know what the gospel says? We are in a broken, fallen world. And I am redeemed. I am saved. And one day I will be in heaven where there is no tears. But right now, there's junk around me. And I don't know why they passed away so early. And I don't know why so-and-so got cancer. And I don't know why this relationship fell apart. But I trust there is a plan. All of a sudden, instead of pain being an attack on your kingdom and a threat to your self-preservation for believers who choose truth, pain is now a tool. All of a sudden, now I can minister to people who are going through what I've gone through. Pain is now part of the plan. Pain has a whole new purpose. And you only understand this if your heart's desire is to build God's kingdom. You take even the pain in your life and say, use this. <laughs> Redeem this. Do what you want with it. But it changes your experience when you go through pain. Because you're automatically thinking, not, woe is me, why would bad things happen to me? You're thinking, I know God can use this. I know God can use this. He's going to do something with it. I'm going to keep my eyes open to see how I can serve him with this pain. Life is painful. Saul's got all kinds of things to complain about. What about you? <laughs> you got things to complain about? We all got things to complain about. Are there things that have happened to you that you don't understand, maybe this week, this year, in life, why people pass away when what seems like untimely deaths, physical ailments, relationship woes. Listen, we all have them. We all have them. And even on a daily basis, we have to choose to submit to God's plan and God's purpose and to build up his kingdom even in the midst of our pain. Otherwise, you will find yourself, you will find yourself fighting against the very ones that are left to fight for you. 
And we're going to see in just a little bit that Saul puts him in a place of isolation and death, spiritual death. It's a bad street to go down. Think about just your life. How often do you find yourself this week? How often when you're talking to friends about maybe some drama happening, do you find yourself saying, I just, oh, I just don't know why this is happening. Right? I just, I can't believe they would do that to me. And you're struggling through the pain. got a decision to make. Many of you guys know, you know our history with this car that we purchased <laughs> a few months ago. Not to rehash the whole story, but I had a whole bunch of reasons, rational reasons, why it would be good for Tara and I to upgrade from this 14-year-old car that had a bunch of miles, didn't have AC in it, wasn't four-door, and it's kind of a pain with a kid. If you don't have four doors in a car, you can rationalize, justify it in all kinds of ways, at most inconveniences, right? First world problems. But I kind of convinced Tara, let's, let's do this. This could be good. Let's upgrade a little bit. We don't need to spend a ton of money, but we need something a little more dependable, something that we can really uh, trust that Silas can be in there with us and it, uh, he can have some air conditioning in the middle of the summer, all kinds of stuff. And I, I, I certainly prayed about it, and I sensed God uh, say, okay, you can do it. Now, I found out afterwards <laughs> when I look, went back and thought about what did God say about this topic? He said, okay. I don't know if okay is you're about to make the best purchase ever or <laughs> okay, this is going to be a lemon and you're going to deal with the consequences, but it's permissible for you to make this decision. I don't, I don't know what okay means, but we're finding out quickly. Well, within the last few months, we, find that this, we found that this car, um, although new and low miles on it, it has all kinds of quirks. Sometimes it likes to shift. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the engine gives you a little funny noise. Sometimes it doesn't. The AC went out on a car that new. It's a $2,000 repair. And just last week, as I fired it up to drive three blocks to my house for lunch, don't ask me why I drive three blocks and don't walk. Anyway, so that's a whole nother issue on that. All the gauges, the digital stuff the, in the dash, the speedometer, the fuel gauge, it's just dead. All of it's dead. I can't tell how fast I'm going. I can't, I'm, whatever. So I drove home, tell Tara, call some places. No one will work on it but the dealership. And you know dealership, it's going to be expensive, right? They let us know, hey, the brain went out on this thing. It's going to be $1,000. And if you want to drive this car, like, you obviously have to replace this. It wasn't too terribly long ago when that kind of pain happened in our lives. We're looking at our, our bank account. We're looking at this repair that we would have said, like, seriously, Why? And what you would have found coming out of our mouths, and I'm thankful by the grace of God uh, we didn't find ourselves saying these things in this occasion. But you would have found ourselves saying, like, seriously, it couldn't have happened at a worse time, right? Like, why now, God? Financially, like, it's not like we got bunches of money. Like, seriously, this is going to hurt financially. And, and, and just the vehicle, man, has proven to be more of a lemon than a blessing. And, and we just go down that route of complaining about your... Now, what would we ever have to complain about, right? Again, these are first world problems. But yet, how many of us in that point of pain and truth do we just rest in the pain? And we, we blame, and, and through self-pity, we say, God, why? Why me? God must not have favor on me. God, why are you allowing this to happen now? And God's sitting back saying, you're so blessed, you don't even, you don't even know what you're saying to me right now. But I, I, I told myself, now, I gotta re I gotta, there's truth there's some gospel truth in this, and I, I need to analyze. And so I, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, okay, God, what, what is making this like a, a bad experience? Okay, well, you don't want $1,000 to be gone from a bank account, right? Why? Because I want security in my money, right? I want, I want enough money in the bank to find security and comfort in this. And, and what about the car? Why is it bad that this car is broken down? Because, you know, we could just get it fixed and life goes on. Well, I don't want to fear that it's going to break down again, and I don't want to believe that it's not dependable. Why? Because I want security in my car. God said, that's the issue. You want your bank account to be a refuge? You want your car to be a refuge? And if you're honest, that's probably why you wanted to buy the thing to begin with. And so now, this, th this pain of $1,000 going down the drain, 
helped to break my heart away from a couple refuges I never should have been placing myself in. All of a sudden, pain just became a good thing. I needed to be broken of those things. But if your heart is not for the kingdom of God to expand first in your own heart and break through your own idols, but to self-preserve, I need a big kingdom, I need nice cars, I need bank accounts, I need... Then you know which direction you would have gone when all that happened. (laughs) We'd have a pity party, wouldn't we? That's what Saul did. Now, we see, we'll have to move quicker through these two. We see the outcomes for both Saul and David's decision. First, we see Saul's. This one is not pleasant. The bulk of the chapter is here. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest. Remember, this is the one who, who gave the sword and the bread to David in chapter 21. The son of Ahitub and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king, and Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. Remember, he doesn't call him Ahimelech. He does, he, son of, it's just degrading. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, that's David, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Now, stop. You remember in chapter 21, it said when David came up to Ahimelech, Ahimelech came to him trembling. He was a man who feared David. He feared Saul. You're going to get a different picture of this priest. Because he knows, he has to know he's facing death if he gives the wrong answer. And yet, what does he do? He answers the king and says, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and the captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? He's sticking up for David. Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. You know, I'm not, I wasn't part of this plan. I don't know what your drama is, Saul. Figure out your own stuff. David's a good dude. And I've prayed for him a lot of times before. And I'll bless him again if I need to. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. So we're talking all the priests. And the king said to the guard who stood about him. Keep in mind, the guard is Saul's own family, right? From Benjamin, who he's made his servants. Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that. He fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king, oh, I love it, would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Uh, And here's this dirty dog, Doeg, again. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. You know misery loves company. There's always one bad egg who will carry out the devil's orders, right? And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Saul's fate is isolation and death. Does it get any nastier than this? Chapter 4 in 1 Samuel, you see all of the priests in the city that was four priests were killed by the Philistines. Now, <laughs> less than 20 chapters later, you see the Israelites, the king of the Israelites, the one who is supposed to protect them, killing God's people, decimating his own people how far the Israelites have fallen. And Saul, he is turning into exactly what the Israelites asked for. Remember what they asked for? A king like all the other nations. He's killing his own people. Saul's fate was isolation and death. Physically, he has these priests killed. Spiritually, Saul's the one dying. And notice that there's some people who don't want to die with him. Some people who just know, you know what, Saul, you might be crazy, you might be king, and you might be family, but we're not going to carry out your commands. His own servants wouldn't do it. There's some people who just know (laughs) they got to stand up for what's right. When you know that the Lord is working and whose hand the Lord is on, you do not, you do not 
go against the Lord. There's a heart cry in the rest of David's whole ministry. You'll see it over and over and over. He has a chance to kill Saul and Saul's family, even long after Saul's dead. He has a chance to kill the family of Saul, and he does not. Why? He says over and over, because you do not, and yet the Lord's anointed. And yet, here's Saul. He'd kill anybody. He'd kill anybody, even a priest. You see, God gives Saul uh, this priest to put him in his place. A priest who stands before God, but now stands before man and says the hard stuff that needs to be said, even though he knows he's surely about to die. Oh, but we see in Jesus we have a much better priest. One who comes to earth, <laughs> fully God, fully man, and he, he is absolutely <coughs> excuse me, familiar with heaven and righteousness and the Lord's commands, and he stands before mankind, and he speaks truth to us, knowing that he is going to the cross to die for us. And yet he still says the hard things that he needed to say. He stood in the face of Pharisees and the religious elite, in front of governors and those in power, and he said the hard stuff. Not only do we see Jesus as the better priest, but we see that God has given us you. When we run, when we're disobedient, he has given us one another, the church, to stand up and to say the hard stuff. What do you do when those who follow the Lord, and you know you're stumbling, you know you're struggling, but they come with a word of correction? How do you handle that? Do you have people in your life that you have allowed to get close enough to you and your junk to be able to speak truth into you? Do you receive it well when they do? This is the purpose of the church, to not just connect with one another, but to, to love one another and trust one another to correct one another. When was the last time you made things awkward in a friendship because you knew they were headed down the wrong path and you said, I've got to, I've got to say something? I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm talking about lovingly saying, you're going down the wrong path. You see, if you ask the average Joe in the world, why do we even have friends? People would probably give you this general answer. We have friends because life is better with friends. It's easier. It's better to have friends than to be lonely, right? But being a good friend is hard. And there's a bunch of easy routes to take. And when you see potential conflict, when you see someone who is struggling in their relationship with God, you and I, how many times do we talk ourselves out of it? We make excuses for them. We say, well, I just don't know if they would handle it well. We say, well, you know what? They've had ups and downs in the past. They'll get back on track. Or maybe, better yet, we have a burning desire. So we really tell them, but instead of saying face-to-face, -face, we go home and tell our spouse or we tell our other friends, like, hey, so-and-so is really struggling. We should pray for them. And then you've got it off your chest just enough to not burden you when you're face-to-face -face with them to actually say it to them. And you've said it to everyone else, but not to them. And God's saying, I want people who will stand up for one another. Galatians chapter 2. In the New Testament, you see Paul giving his, his life's testimony, essentially, to the people in Galatia. And he, he says this, and I was going to read off the whole thing for you, but for the sake of time, uh, just reference Romans, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 2. And he's saying this, essentially. That when he first became a Christian, being known for killing other Christians, he was kind of, he, he, was, he was enamored with what they would call the super apostles. Peter and James and the big dogs, those who walked with Jesus and followed Jesus, and now they're leaders in his church. And it was one thing he had to come before them to Jerusalem and, and tell them about what God has done and almost kind of earn their trust. You can see Paul's kind of like, wow, they're awesome. But then we serve together. And then if you remember the council in Acts chapter 15, the council in Jerusalem in AD 48 or 49, where the Jews and the Gentiles were struggling as to what Christian life looked like. And Peter, who ministered to the Jews, and Paul, who ministered to the Gentiles, were both uh, odds a little bit. And it says in Galatians 2, Peter sa or excuse me, Paul says, And I came to Cephas, Peter, and I addressed him to his face because he was wrong. He was a hypocrite. When he was with the Gentiles, he's saying, hey, you guys don't need to follow all these Jewish rules. But when he's hanging out with his Jews, he's like, yeah, of course, I tell the Gentiles they need to follow things. They need to be circumcised. They need to do what you guys do. He was two different people around two different groups. And Paul calls him out. 
Paul, who used to be intimidated of these guys, the super apostles, is now saying, in Christ, when I see you going the wrong way, I don't care who you are, we're all on level playing ground. We've got to call each other out for the sake of sanctification. What about you? Are you that friend? (laughs) Are you the Ahimelech who can stand in front of someone knowing this is probably going to do some damage if this isn't taken well in our friendship? It's going to be, but you're willing to speak the hard stuff. And in Saul's case, when you have gone astray and someone stands in front of you and says, we need to get back on track. How do you handle that? Saul doesn't handle it very well. And he gets isolation and death. Last but not least, the last few verses. Now we see David's decision to seek refuge in the first few verses. We see what it does. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, back in chapter 21, when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasion, this is important, I have occasion to the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safe keeping. Last thing we see, David's fate, his accountability, but also peace. Look, look, <laughs> this is kind of weird, right? This dude escapes the, the wrath. Everyone in the town dies. All the priests die. And he comes to David and he says, listen, everyone's dead. It's because that dude who saw you with the priest in the previous couple days, he is the one who told Saul. And Saul, they killed them all. And David's like, oh my gosh, this is me. If I, if I wouldn't have run from God, if I wouldn't have run to him, if I wouldn't have run scared, I wouldn't have put everyone in the position, these priests in the position, to die. Like, he's taking responsibility for it, not just for his own actions, because David didn't kill these guys. He's taking responsibility for Saul's actions, which is crazy in and of itself. Almost a freak-out moment. But then, is it not weird how in the very last verse it shifts? (laughs) He says, "I'm, I'm responsible for all this, but stay with me. Do not be afraid. And he goes on. It's almost like he's got a peace and a confidence. Like if you've screwed up that much in life, you're probably not inviting house guests to come in and saying, hey, I'm making a lot of great decisions. You should live with me. Life will go well for you. Right? And yet he's got a peace and a confidence. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Listen, when Tara and I, when uh, we went on our honeymoon seven and a half years ago, we were in Jamaica, and we had ventured out from our little, uh, our little resort place, and we were going to some touristy things, and there was, this, um, there was this little shop that we went into, and it was just for tourists. You could tell it was decked out. They even had, like, soda for you for free, and we're like, okay, wow, well, we can just kind of browse and have, like, a Coca-Cola. And, of course, it's Jamaican Coca-Cola, so it's got, like, weird granulated sugar. Anyway, and, and we're just drinking our, our Coca-Cola, and we're like, this is great. And Tara and I were looking. And stuff, and I saw on top of uh, this thing, I saw a bunch of like glass picture frames. And I said, "Oh, this is on there." Cool. And I reached up and I grabbed one, and my finger slipped a little bit. And there's a bunch of them on there, right behind one another. And ding, 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 ding. One tips over and starts tipping all the. And there's there's no like wall. And Tara's on the other side. And we're in the middle of this little shop, and all of a sudden, one or two fall. <laughs> Glass goes everywhere. Now, just for fun, you need to know. Tara abandoned me in that moment. She acted like she didn't even know me. She, she knew I did it. And she turned immediately, acted like she was still shopping. And I, I called her out on that many times in marriage. But in our hearts, we're thinking, oh, my gosh, we just made a big mistake. We're going to have to pay for that. This is bad. And yet the dude who owned the store was like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. He cleaned it up. He didn't charge us nothing. Just acted like it was okay. Because he was the owner. 
And if he chooses not to charge you for something or to pay the price for it, he can do that. David is in this mix between great realization of his sin and being held accountable for it and yet has an amazing peace, right? And this is what believers go through. We, more than any other people on earth, have a deep recognition of our own sin and flaws, and yet at the exact same time, when you would think we would just be burdened with guilt to the point of death, we have an amazing peace because we're trusting that Jesus paid the price on the cross. Jesus created you. He knows your sin. He is the owner of this shop that we call the earth. And he's saying, I'll I'll pay the price. For what's broken, I'll pay the price. I'll redeem it. There's still hope. Regardless of where you are in life, there's still hope. In Psalm 18, in Psalm 144, King David writes after this incident. And in both of those psalms, he writes these verses almost identical. He says, the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress in whom I take refuge. David knows what it's like to be on the run and to not find refuge. But he learned in life to find refuge in the right place. The cave of Adullam was great for a time, but it wasn't where he was meant to be. And he learned that the Lord is the best refuge of all. Listen, I don't want you or me or anyone else to get to the end of this life and realize that we had a refuge in Christ, not just Lord, not just Savior, not just someone to tell us what to do, and not just a beautiful message of redemption, of forgiveness, but a daily refuge, a hiding place, better than that quiet room you have in the back of your house, better than cranking up the music in your car while you go to work to relieve some stress, certainly better than Netflix or the next book you're going to read, better than relationships that give you great advice, better than people who comfort your soul when you're around them, or the best dish your mama could ever make for you. There is a refuge that you can have daily. Where are you going to live? Where are you going to live? Let's pray.